on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's God's challenge to us as pastors and as Christians to learn his word. It's the only book he ever wrote. It's the only book God ever inspired that he has entrusted to his people as we represent him through his word. And so in the next hour, if you have a particular question or issue that you'd like to dialogue with us about, the number locally is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for those internet listeners and those outside of South Carolina. That number is 877 WAGP 980, or many people prefer just to uh, email us here directly into the studio, and you can email your questions. It will pop up on the screen. Your Bible questions at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can simply dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable, you can go on the air live and, uh, and ask your question that way. In fact, I think we already have a caller that's waiting. So let's, uh, let's go right to that caller this morning. All right, caller, good morning. You are on the Bible line. Um, hi, Pastor Carl. This is Rachel Ann Woodbury and Manning. Hi, Rachel. How are you today? Good. How are you? Well, good. Thank you. Um, I had a question. Um, I um, just got out of a Bible study this morning, and the pastor said that um, we were talking about it's more, well, people ask questions and he answers them, and somebody asked a question about um, Genesis, and he said that Genesis 1, 1 through 3 um, doesn't really matter and that we should be, as Christians, we should be more, um, we should pay, be paying more attention to the fact that we're here and where we're going, and and that it's really a gray area. What do you think about that? Well, um, again, I, I, not having dialogued with this pastor directly, I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, or I know sometimes it's very easy to say something and be misrepresented, but let me give you the historical view of what most evangelical Bible-believing Christians uh, for virtually 20 centuries held that I hold to, that I believe Jesus Christ holds to. I think Genesis 1 through 11 is not a parable, it's history that the events that are recorded there literally actually happened just as God said it. I believe that's how Jesus understood it. He viewed Adam and Eve as real, literal people. When he spoke on the subject of divorce, he goes all the way back to these early chapters in Genesis where he says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Uh, he viewed Adam and Eve as the very first people that God made, that God uh, uh, had created them. He viewed Noah 
as a real historical person uh, that the flood that took place that was worldwide in nature actually literally happened. Um, So for someone to say otherwise, that it doesn't matter, well, it mattered to Jesus and it should matter to us because if you can't believe Genesis 1 through 11, then what can you believe? Um, And that's one of the reasons that a lot of people today, you know, shrug their shoulders at evangelical pastors and say, well, you know, does it matter? I mean, my pastor says it doesn't matter if Genesis 1 through 11 happened. You know, if it's just parable, as some pastors are preaching today, then what's parable? What's real? When do I interpret the Bible at plain face value? And when do I just blow it off? I mean, it's very important. It's foundational. And when you lose your foundation in Genesis, you've really lost the rest of the Bible. So I don't think it's a small thing. I don't think it's a gray area. Jesus didn't make it gray. He made it black and white, that these were real historical events that took place in Genesis 1 through 11. It's not parable. It's uh, history, and um, we need to understand it as such. We take the Bible at face value in its grammatical historical setting. And God, when he said he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, he meant precisely that. Um, and so I think it's very, very important. Um, so I hope that helps. Yes, sir. All right. Thank Great you very question, much. Rachel. All right. Let's go to our next caller. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you. And let me say amen to the response to the last question, Pastor. <laughs> uh, my question is, uh, I heard you this morning, uh, uh, you was, uh, you were talking about Isaac Christ, and he was talking about the uniqueness of their their birth. And I'm hoping this is just a question of semantics, because I've been listening to you for a long time. And you said that um, in Christ, the perfect humanity, uh, the divinity, the perfect divine nature in Christ was mixed with the perfect humanity in the womb of Mary. I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. Now, my understanding that, that the two natures in Christ was Conjoined, they were never mixed. And I think, if I understand my church history correct, uh, one of the early church fathers argued against that position. That is, that the natures in Christ was mixed versus being conjoined. Could you uh, comment on that? And I'll just stay on the line in case I have a follow-up question. If you don't mind. Yeah. Um... I don't know what's playing right now on the... Uh, the sacrifice of uh, Isaac by Abraham. Yeah, okay. The well, test. I, I, Yeah, so Genesis 22. So certainly, uh, Isaac is a picture of Christ. He's not a perfect type, but indeed he is a picture. And his birth was miraculous in nature in the sense that um, it was beyond their you know physical capabilities to have a child, but God touched their human body and... Again, there's a supernatural birth. There's a supernatural picture there on Mount Moriah. And uh, certainly there are parallels, but then there are places in which there's, of course, no parallel at all. When we think of the conception of the Lord Jesus, it is a miraculous birth. It's a perfect, sinless humanity and eternal deity brought inseparably together into one person. Now, you know, the mechanics there's a certain mystery, but the natures of Christ are inseparably brought together into one person. 
He's not half God and half man. He's not all man and no God. He's not all God and no man. He's the God man. Uh, People in the old ancient confessions would express it with the words, he is truly God, truly man, meaning he's all God, he's all man. And they are brought together, (coughs) excuse me, in one person, Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, you know, in terms of the mechanics of how God did that, we do know, obviously, that the one who overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary was God the Holy Spirit. There's no human father involved. God the Holy Spirit made this miracle happen. Uh, how God does all those things, you know, are a, there's a certain mystery in the modern sense of the word, um, but he did it. And uh, that's what church history has always stood for. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I don't know what I said this morning. (laughs) I may have said something that, you know, you could take it my words a few different ways. But uh, do do you follow there what I've just said? Yes, I do. And what what, what caught me when you said it, you just used the word mix. Maybe a poor choice of words there. That's what I was saying. It was a yeah. whole question of Yeah, humanity. a poor choice you, of words. Exactly. When you said inseparable, I knew it was on the same page. Right. Exactly, because those natures could not be made. You listen very carefully. Thank I appreciate you. that. No that's problem, that's sir. good, brother. God bless you. You have a God great day. All right. Let's go to our next question. All right. We've got another caller that I believe is standing by. Let's see if they're yet on line three. No, they're uh, going to be calling in just a second. But this morning you were talking about the uh, – uniqueness of that whole thing about the crown of thorns on the uh, the sacrificial ram. Right. And the, 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 the picture there is, is marvelous. It's an Old Testament Calvary. It's a dress rehearsal of what God is going to perform a few thousand years later. Three days away, you can see Mount yeah. Moriah, all mm-hmm. that wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brody. Um, my question is regards to Daniel uh, 9.24, I believe, is the 70-week reference of it. I understand it's you know, what most people consider a delayed prophecy, 69 weeks happening right up to Jesus' uh, crucifixion. And uh, we uh, then the last week uh, afterwards that we live in the church age, and then when the one week coming ahead of time, um, this is mainstream, correct? Yeah, uh, it depends, you know, in terms of who you're speaking with. Um, but I would, I would take it that the sixty-nine, you know, the seventy weeks prophecy of Daniel, that the first sixty-nine weeks were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ, and that there is indeed a gap between the sixty-ninth and seventieth week of time. The seventieth week being the time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah the prophet calls it and refers to it. Uh, the New Testament um, refers specifically to a seven-year period uh, that in the middle of that 70th week period, uh, as Jesus points out in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, he said, the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel is going to take place. So when Jesus looked at the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, he po- pointed it as a future event that would take place during the time of the Great Tribulation period. And this concurs, too, with what the Apostle Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2, where he describes the man of sin, the one whom John calls the Antichrist, who goes into the temple of God and makes himself out to be God. He claims to be God 
in human flesh. He will commit the abomination of desolation. And so um, I will say, though, that there are some theologians there typically in what's called the amillennial camp that think that all 70 weeks have already been fulfilled, that the great tribulation period has already taken place. Uh, They just have one major event that is in the future, the literal, actual second coming of Christ. There is no tribulation. that That's already history. Um, There's no rapture catching up that's distinct from the second coming. Uh, So there are some people who would differ with that, but I have um, three messages on uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, where I very carefully walk through each and every word that is here, uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and that might be encouraging uh, for you to listen to. I think, you know, uh, if you had further questions, and I spend, you know, about 60 minutes each on those messages. Um, So, uh, I mean, I can give you, I just gave you the short two-minute answer, but if you want the three-hour answer, you can listen to those tapes. Does that help, caller? Yes, thank you. Um, so there's other opposition views, and I should check towards the amillennial uh, group. Yeah, the amillennial view. Yeah, they they don't believe, and he, here's the, here's why. Here's why. It, it's um, amillennialism came out of Roman Catholicism. Uh, one, you know, primary aspect of Roman Catholic theology is that God is done with the Jewish people uh, in terms of being the chosen people uh, that the church the body of Christ, in their mind, the Roman Catholic Church, has replaced national Israel. That there is no future for the Jew other than the fact that there are Jewish people who can receive Jesus as the Savior. But in terms of Israel having any significance prophetically, in terms of the promises that God made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they view those promises as conditional in nature, that because of Israel's rebellion and disobedience, God will not fulfill them. There will not be a literal kingdom in which Messiah will reign from Israel, as the Old Testament teaches, as I believe the New Testament affirms. And so when you had some Protestant reformers who are coming out of Roman Catholicism, the areas in which they principally focused on, guys like Calvin and Luther, was... um, was the area of salvation. How is a man saved? And two, what is our final authority? They didn't really delve much into the uh, doctrine of eschatology or the doctrine of last things. They primarily focused on how can a man get right with God? And of course, those are the most important issues and they, they needed to focus on that. But a lot of their theology, a lot of Calvin's theology is Roman Catholicism repackaged. It really is. I mean, if you think about it, um, he just said, well, the the, the the true people of God is not necessarily the Roman Catholic Church, but all born-again Christians, the body of Christ. But it's not necessarily, um, you know, just some organization. But he adapted the mindset that the body of Christ had replaced national Israel. And, of course, that affects a lot of different realms of theology for Calvin. Um, he takes uh, infant baptism. He puts the spin of circumcision on it. Uh, where he would argue, yeah, the first generation of people circumcised were adults. After that, there are children on the eighth day, so we should do the same with baptism. In terms of uh, election, Romans 9 is not dealing with uh, God 
uh, choosing the nation of Israel out of all the other peoples of the world, but he puts a personal election spin on it. So it affects and integrates every realm of theology that Calvin had. And I think he's grossly mistaken. I think he was in error, and I think he knows better now. But so, yeah, there are some people who would differ with that. But I, you know, again, we can't both be right. But um, how did God fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, literally, actually? How will he fulfill the prophecies of the New Testament? I think literally. Calvin had trouble with Revelation. In fact, he wrote a commentary in every book of the Bible except Revelation. He didn't know what to do with it. He just hermeneutically could not be consistent uh, with Revelation. And I think a lot of it was his Roman Catholicism that had overshadowed his, uh, his theology and the way he interpreted Scripture. But um, anyway, that's a short answer. I have a series on the doctrine of last times that I did on Wednesday nights, and it's available through the Institute of Biblical Studies. If you really want to do an in-depth search, looking at every realm of theology, amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, it all basically comes down to, does God have a future for the Jew where there, is, where there are some promises that God made that were unconditional in nature that he's going to fulfill no matter what? Those are the cri- issues that somebody has to ask and answer for themselves. But I appreciate your question. Let's go to our next live caller who's waiting. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Dr. Brogy. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for calling today. No problem. Thank you for your ministry. It's really affected my life a lot. But my question is, is that just having a little trouble understanding because God has blessed me really great by just putting me here in America, and I'm just having trouble understanding why he would put someone in a country like the Middle East or India where they would be born into a false religion and then raised up and just die that way. I mean, if God was in control of everybody, I'm having understanding. Maybe you can shed some light on how he can work in people like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. In fact, um this fall beginning in October, and it will be interspersed through the fall and the spring, I'll be doing a series on Christian apologetics. And first I'll introduce the concept of apologetics. Uh, Apologia is the Greek word to give a defense. We are to be ready to give a defense. The Greek word's apologia, and so we get our word apologetics. We're, We're not saying sorry for what we believe, but we're giving a reason for why we believe what we believe. So I'm going to introduce the subject, and then we're going to delve into the 10 hardest questions that Christians are typically asked. And your question basically is, you know, packaged in a lot of different formats, but it often sounds like this. If God really loves people, if God says that the only way for salvation is through his Son— for there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, then how is it? that God can condemn someone for having not believed in a Savior whom he's never heard of. And, of course, you're raising circumstances. You know, somebody's raised in some false religious system. And so how how do we deal with that? Well, I'll give you the 90-second the answer. Uh, the Bible teaches that all men have a common base of information that the Lord has given to them. Uh, It comes in two ways. Uh, First, in what we call general revelation, it comes in two ways, through both the creation and the conscience. The creation is what God's made. Uh, When you look around and you see the mountains and the trees and the oceans, when you look at the intricacies of the human body, you say, this just didn't happen by chance. 
the design points to a designer, just like the watch that you might carry on your wrist having a few hundred working pieces in it. You don't believe someone shook it up in a bag for six billion years and out came that watch. No, the design points to a designer. Well, Paul argues in Romans 1 that God's eternal attributes, his divine nature, is clearly seen through the things that he made so men are without excuse. So nobody starts polytheistic. That is to say that, oh, I was raised in a family where my daddy and mommy believed that there was a thousand gods, and so I should believe there's a thousand gods. No, when a child is born and raised up into this world in his mind, in his heart, he knows there's one God. God wrote that into the dynamics of the creation, and he wrote it into a person's conscience. Paul argues in Romans two fifteen, the Gentiles there being used to describe the, the pagans of the world. Uh, the Gentiles who don't have the law ha- show the work of the law written in their hearts, he argues, their conscience defending or accusing them. Um, he's saying, look, the Gentiles don't have a Bible, but they show the work of the Bible written into their consciences and that when they do what's pleasing and right, their conscience says, that's a boy, you did a great job. When they do something that's evil, their conscience accuses them and tells them that what they did is wrong. I have a friend uh, um, who went, Wayne Bauman, uh, he's a missionary and he works in Papua New Guinea with a tribe of people called the Arumba. When Wayne went to the Arumba people 20-some years ago, he went into a culture where they have never heard the name of Jesus, never saw a Bible in their lives. And yet what was so interesting is in that culture, it was wrong to murder someone. It was wrong to steal from somebody. It was wrong to jump into bed with somebody who is not your wife. Where did they have the concept that, A, you should have marriage, B, that their murder was wrong, C, that stealing was displeasing? Well, the law of God was written into their hearts. So all men have that knowledge. Now, some people, the Bible says, professing to be wise, become foolish in that they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, what God has revealed from without and from in, and instead they worship the created thing. Uh, They turn to idolatry. And there are many forms and many expressions of idolatry. So here's the biblical principle. Light received brings more light. If a man responds to the light that he has, God brings more light. Light received brings more light. And ultimately, it brings specific revelation, namely the gospel. God is consistent. God practices what he preaches. And the Son of God told us that there is a time when there is utter disdain for the things of God, and we are to withhold the gospel pearl, Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a time when we just say, no, I'm not going to talk any further about Jesus because they are just mocking God, blaspheming God. That's enough. Well, God practices what he preaches. Sometimes God withholds the gospel because a man will not respond to the light that he's been given. If a man won't respond to the most general of all information given through creation and conscience, what makes us think that he's going to respond to God's precious gospel? But if a man says, look, I know there's a God. I see him in creation. I sense him in my conscience. I want to know this God. Then God has a way of moving heaven and earth, sending a guy like Wayne Bauman to bring the gospel to the Arumba people that they might know how they can be forgiven and be saved. 
So God doesn't send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard. God's judgment is on the fact that they've rejected the clear revelation that God has given through creation and conscience. That's the short answer. This fall, I'll give an hour-long answer on a Wednesday night series. So the Lord's bigger than a person's circumstances. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We could repackage your question in America and not put it, well, this child was brought up in a Hindu home in India, but this child was brought up whose daddy was a drunk, whose mother was a prostitute, neither seemed to give any thought or care for the things of God. How could that person stand a chance? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So God's bigger than man's sin. And when God says, I desire none to perish, but for all to come to repentance, he said what he meant. He meant what he said. And uh, God is uh, not wishing that men perish, but that people come to repentance. Does that help, listener? That does very much. Thank you. All right. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980. Or email us at tvl at WAGP as this listener in Corpus Christi has. He writes, I have heard of a software called Rosetta Stone that teaches you contemporary languages. Is there a Rosetta Stone type of software to learn Bible Greek and Hebrew? And how different is Bible Greek and Hebrew from contemporary Greek and Hebrew? Is there such a thing as an audio Bible that is read in the original Koine Greek and Hebrew? Well, it's a good good question. Uh, Rosetta Stone, you know, is a company that creates... um, you know, uh, tapes or CDs that you can listen to that will help you to learn some basic communication skills in a language. And I've had some friends who've used them and been very encouraged and very pleased by them. I've never personally used the Rosetta Stone. Uh, Is there a parallel between if you got Rosetta Stone, you want to go to Greece and you want to learn Greek, or you want to go to Israel and learn Hebrew? Is there a parallel? Not much of a parallel. The, 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 um, the difference between ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew and modern Greek and modern Hebrew is huge. Now, there's a lot of parallels in terms of the formation of letters. Uh, there's a lot of parallels between, though even there, there was some difference in terms of the printed letter versus a cursive style that they would use today, say, in, in Israel um, that you don't see in say, the Hebrew Old Testament uh, or, for, or in the Greek New Testament. But the, the word meanings, yeah, there are some words that are parallel, that are somewhat static, that haven't changed. But there's, I mean, thousands of words that are totally different, that have a, 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 a think about it in English. Think about the 1611 King James translation of the Bible and think about the modern language of the Bible that we use today. Between, uh, and by the way, when people say, well, I only believe in reading the 1611 King James, they're not reading the 1611, they're reading the 1769, they're reading the fifth revision of the King James, and now we have really a sixth, we call it the New King James. Uh, they couldn't read the 1611, most of them. In fact, when I did an analysis of major Bible English translations in our Institute of Biblical Studies course on bibliology, I gave a whole list of words in the old King James that today mean the exact opposite of what they meant in 1611. That's how language changes. It's not static. And so really, 
today in English, we're just asking, well, what word today best represents that um, word in ancient Hebrew or in ancient Greek? So, but with that said, there are now software programs where you can learn, you know, biblical Greek or biblical Hebrew. Uh, Some people can run with those and do really well. Uh, Most people need an instructor, somebody they can dialogue with and ask questions of. But now even some seminaries, you can take online courses and, um, you know, so if you have a real desire to learn Greek and Hebrew, there's a way to do it. What's always interesting to me is when you, you deal with people during the time of the Reformation, uh, you know, they taught themselves Greek and Hebrew. Um, they, uh, they just did it. And so you can do it too if, that's, if God's given you a proclivity towards that and, a, and it's not impossible. But, but there is, if you get a Rosetta Stone on today's Greek or today's Hebrew and think you're going to be able to read the Bible, you, you'll be grossly mistaken and disappointed. All right, very good. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick and Carl. How are you all today? Doing well, thank you. Uh, We were covering Acts 13 in Sunday school, uh, RABF, and uh, uh, Bill came up with the term baptism of repentance. And I had something I guess I'd never thought about. And to be quite frank with you, I don't have a clue what it is, what that means. And I would like to ask uh, your instruction regarding that. And also, uh, I know it probably does relate to to John the Baptist or how it relates there. So maybe you could add that. And I will hang up and listen to your answer. Thank you, and God bless you. I have a handout that might be helpful if they want to call back. Um, It's a handout on baptism, and I have a short version and a long version. The short version we give to baptismal candidates so that before we baptize someone, we encourage them to read through the handout. I sat down one day and I said, well, what are the questions that have been habitually asked of me year after year about baptism? And I wrote them all down and then tried to answer them with chapter and verse so people could draw their authority from there. Uh, And then I have in our Institute of Biblical Studies course a a more extended uh, handout that's just the same one but expanded, dealing with some more difficult passages. There's a lot of different kinds of baptisms that are spoken of in the Bible. Um, there's, um, John's baptism, which is referred to as a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism that was preparatory. Uh, it was a baptism that was looking forward to Messiah. Isaiah 40, as well as the book of Malachi, uh, spoke of John the Baptist's ministry, that there was going to be a forerunner who will come before, uh, the first coming of Messiah who would prepare the way. And so that's what John did. He uh, prepared the way. He said, Messiah is coming. Be ready spiritually. Prepare your hearts. And it was really a baptism of repentance, a baptism of a change of mind, a baptism asking people to uh, look for the one who is coming, looking for the promised Messiah. I don't believe that baptism was a substitute for believer's baptism which would is what the Lord instituted in his great commission when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I say that because of the specific illustration that you will find later on in the book of Acts, in Acts the 19th chapter, when Paul arrives in Ephesus and 
He's asking some diagnostic questions of sorts, like, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Well, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, they said. Well, into then what were you baptized? Into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, we, we had John's baptism. Oh, well, Paul said, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. There's the phraseology you use, Acts 19.4, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these were people who no doubt had been in Israel for one of, um, you know, the uh, required festivals, probably. Maybe they were visiting relatives. But however, and for whatever reason, they were in Israel. They came under the preaching of John the Baptist. Then they left and went back to Ephesus. All they heard was, yeah, John, God's man, God's prophet said Messiah is coming. They didn't know that what John had predicted had come true. They weren't there when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, they didn't know that Messiah had come and that Messiah had been designated with the proper name Yeshua, Jesus in Greek, uh, in English, Iesus in in Greek. Um, And so they, they didn't know that. And so they heard the full plan of salvation and they believed. They trusted the Lord Jesus Christ is their Savior. And so now they were baptized in Jesus' name. I don't think, as some oneness Pentecostals argue, that uh, when we baptize people, we should say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. I think this is just a shortened form where Luke is now uh, emphasizing um, their identity with Jesus Christ. I don't think that Paul disobeyed the baptismal formula that Jesus gave in Matthew 28. I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Luke is just putting emphasis here that they had now come to believe and identify with Jesus as indeed the promised Messiah. Anyway, uh, so there's a number of different kinds of baptisms, uh, and I walk through all those. Uh, what, what some people mistakenly do is they take some of the passages that deal with baptism, and they put water in it. And every time, of course, the word baptism appears in the Bible, it's not always of water. Sometimes it's a reference to spirit baptism. And so when they confuse that, they create real problems. Anyway, let's go to our next caller or question. All right, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, thanks for calling today. Uh, I got a question I've been pondering. Um, I hear, you know, in a lot of preaching that, you know, they say that Christ died spiritually. Uh, I mean, we know he died physically, but they say that he died a spiritual death. And I'm trying to understand that in the light of his eternal nature, which is the same as the Father, like when he said in John chapter 4, God is is spirit. And if he is eternally of that spirit nature, in what sense did he also die spiritually? Well, it's a good question, and there's certainly a degree of mystery. And again, I'm using the modern sense of the word uh, in terms of all that transpired there on the cross. Uh, We see dimly, someday I think we'll see much more clearly, but the term death is certainly used in different ways in the Word of God. Is back as early as Genesis 2, God warned Adam and Eve, the day you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Well, the day they ate from it, uh, they didn't appear to die. God didn't dig a hole and drop them six feet under. But God cannot lie, and God did exactly what he said he would do 
And he said, the day you eat from it, you will die. They did die that day because there's different kinds of death. They died on the inside. They died spiritually. All of a sudden, the intimacy with God that they had enjoyed was lost. Instead of really seeking the Lord and walking with him in the cool of the garden, they're now hiding from him. They're ashamed of their sin. They're trying to cover their themselves over because now for the first time, they're aware of their nakedness. So there's different kinds of death. They, they immediately died in their spirit. On that day, they began to physically die in their bodies. They were aging. And someday, if the problem is not corrected with an individual, they will eternally die. Uh, it's what the Bible refers to as the second death. Um, John says in the Revelation that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, in the Lamb's Book of Life, he, he experiences the second death. They're cast into the lake of fire. So the Lord Jesus had to completely and totally pay for sin. The justice of God had to be met out. So yes, he shed his innocent blood. He dies a physical death. But there's a sense, too, in which he experiences spiritual separation. And I think this is what really broke the heart of the Son of God. When he said, Father, if possible remove this cup from me. Was Jesus afraid of uh, the persecution of the cross? No, he, he practiced what he preached. I don't think what Jesus feared was um, spikes running through his hands or feet. Uh, that, that's not what broke his heart that caused him to experience hematidrosis where the small, minute capillaries under the skin, as the one medical doctor of the New Testament, Luke, records, as he sweat drops of blood. I, I don't think he sweat drops of blood over the fear of persecution, but I do think he sweat drops of blood over the fact that he knew that for the first time in all of eternity, a perfect, unbroken love relationship would be broken. It would be severed. So when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's not semantical, that's literal. Uh, That's not metaphorical, that's actual. He literally was forsaken by God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, no longer shared that eternal, unbroken relationship that he had known. He became sin for us in that moment. Now, the question that people say sometimes or have asked me, well, well, how could he pull it off, you know, there on the cross when it takes us an eternity to do it? Well, why wouldn't he have to be separated for an eternity? Because he's an infinite person. Jesus, in a finite period of time, as an infinite person, could accomplish what we as finite people would take an eternity to do. Um, so he could say to tell us die, that is paid in full. It's finished. All that the father demands is finished. I've met all of the just requirements against sin there on the cross. Now, again, there's a certain mystery to that. And I don't in any way, shape or form claim to understand it all, but I do think there are some things that we can understand, and what I've said is hopefully understandable to you and, and helpful. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us, as has this listener, to tbl at net. 
This person writes, my youngest son and I were discussing predestination a few nights ago, and then I heard Dr. MacArthur preaching about it the next morning. I went to his website and read the printed version of the sermon because I missed the entire sermon on the radio. Anyway, the past three mornings on Grace to You, he has been talking about predestination and election. He said that God chooses those who will be saved, and he does so sovereignly according to his own will and his own purpose, uninfluenced by any other person or by anything anyone does. All right, number one, if this is a correct understanding, why are we to pray for the lost? Number two, I heard you say that all babies and young children that die go to heaven. How can we know that all children are part of the group God has chosen? And finally, if God chooses those to whom he will give the ability to believe in him, doesn't that also mean that he denies the ability to believe to others, thereby allowing them to go to hell because he does nothing to save them? I know God is faithful and good, which makes it difficult to reconcile this teaching with my understanding of God. I also know that he said to trust him with all my heart and lean not into my own understanding, but I'm struggling with this. Well, it's a good question, and I'm not sure I can you know, give you a complete answer here in a couple of minutes, but let me give you some food for thought as a starting place. Um, John MacArthur is a good man. He's committed to the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Scripture. I don't think you'll find any two pastors that agree on every point of doctrine, and I certainly don't agree with Dr. MacArthur on some of the positions that he's taken and more recently moving into a limited atonement uh, position where he doesn't believe the Lord Jesus died for all but only for those who are elect. That was not his historical position that he held and taught for many years, but he's gravitated into that. And certainly there are times when... Uh, what some would refer to as Reformed theology, though I think they've robbed the uh, the terminology, just like the charismatic movement robbed the words when they say, well, we're a charismatic church. Well, I hope every church is charismatic. I hope every Bible-believing church believes that there are gifts of the Spirit and that every Christian has at least one and should just define their gift, find it out and use it and be a good steward of it. Uh, but, you know, by charismatic, they mean, well, just certain, you know, dr- what they would consider more dramatic gifts uh, are what define them. And the term reformed now has come to take a different nuance. And it's typically those especially who, in their view of election, take a position that, you know, is more consistent with John Calvin. Um Here's the thing. Uh, You cannot be a biblical Christian and deny the doctrine of election. The Bible teaches that God elects people. It's not a question of whether election is true or happens. That's not the point of debate. He elected us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 affirms. The question is on what basis does God elect and how does God elect? That becomes the question. And really the crux of the issue, and I'll be dealing with this in a very detailed manner later on in 2012, if the rapture doesn't happen and God allows me to preach it, when uh, I will look at some challenging passages of Scripture that deal with the doctrine of election. Now, again, earlier on in the uh, broadcast, we were talking a little bit about John Calvin. But, for instance, in Romans 9, because he believed that uh, God was done with national Israel, 
that's going to influence the way he looks at Romans 9. So he looks through a set of rose-colored glasses that it can't mean God's choosing of Israel. It must mean God's choosing of individuals. But when the scripture says, for instance, quoting the book of Malachi in Romans 9, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, what is it referring to? Is it saying that God chose, um, you know, Jacob to go to heaven and he created and manufactured Esau to go to hell? I don't think so. It goes back to what God said in Genesis 25, that two nations were in her womb and that God chose one nation over another. And if you're going to follow that hermeneutic, all of that principle of interpretation all the way through Romans 9, and one's going to be consistent, well, when God blesses the son of promise in Romans 9, does that mean that Ishmael went to hell? I think you can argue that Ishmael went to heaven and we will meet Ishmael in heaven. And I argued that in my series on Genesis through the phraseology that God uses. He was gathered to his own people. Well, what people had died at that point in his family to whom he had been gathered to? Only two that we know of, Hagar, who was a believer whom we will meet in heaven. She's gloriously converted out there in the desert. And Abraham. Uh, his daddy, he's gathered to his own. We'll meet Ishmael in heaven. But did Ishmael have the promise that his lineage would have a special role in salvation history? No, God gave that promise to Isaac. He was the son of promise. So I think, um, you know, how we understand Israel becomes very, very critical and how we understand foreknowledge. I only caught a smidgen driving in of John MacArthur's uh, dialogue. I usually come in pretty early and don't even get to hear him, but I came in late that day between 9 and 9.30, and I caught a smidgen of it. And it really, the, the crux of the issue is the issue of foreknowledge. Is foreknowledge a divine attribute or is foreknowledge a divine action? In John MacArthur's theology, it's a divine action. I think it's primarily used in scripture as a divine attribute that when Peter tells us that God chose us according to his foreknowledge, I think prognosco there means pre-knowledge that God in eternity past looked at uh, the world um, down the corridors of time and he could tell who would respond to the gospel and who would not. And so it says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. First Peter 1, verse 2. So I think the fact that God is omniscient, all-knowing, uh, and in eternity past knew how men would respond, he could, before the foundations of the world, write down people's name in his book as to who would be saved. This in no way took away from man's free will. Man is totally free. Um, but with that said, I also believe, and I think John MacArthur is right here, that man is dead in his sin, that man doesn't have a spark left in him, that God has to be the first mover uh, for the free will to be able to respond. 
And I believe God does move and continues to move. Because again, when, when God says he's willing for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance, he means that. When, when he says he desires all men to be saved, he's not just talking about all different kinds of people, you know, kings and those in authority and those non-authority people. I think he's talking about um, people, humanity, that God's heart is for people to be saved. Will everybody be saved? Of course not. Um, but a lot of the ra- reasons that people give come more from logic, I think, than from Scripture. And so I would differ with John MacArthur on this issue. He's a good guy, so that's why we play him on the radio. But we're going to agree to disagree on this one. Let's go to the next uh, question. All right. Another listener writes, I've been studying the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 recently. It seems the more I study these chapters, the more questions I have. Can you give me an overview of the events that take place? What is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins referring to and the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25? If this is not the white throne judgment, why does Jesus say that the sheep entered into life eternal, but the goats into everlasting punishment? Well, it's a good question. And I think what can become confusing sometimes is to fail to recognize that there's a number of different judgments that are spoken of in the Bible. The next judgment that men face really the church faces, the body of Christ faces, is what people often summarize as the Bema seat. Uh, A Bema seat was a reward seat. It was a platform where a judge would stand and he would evaluate, say, the Isthmian Games. And if Rick and I were in a 100-meter race and Rick won and I didn't, he would receive the coveted wreath. I wouldn't be whipped or punished. I just wouldn't receive a reward. Well, there's a a judgment for Christians that judges us on our service. That's in the future. That's going to happen and unfold during the time of the Great Tribulation. At the end of that seven-year period, after the church has been removed, at the end of that seven-year period, there's a judgment of Old Testament saints and Tribulation saints. And so... Daniel 12 has the bodily resurrection of all the Old Testament saints happening at the end of Jacob's trouble. Let me just turn there for just a moment because they're not resurrected at the same time, the body of Christ, the church is resurrected. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the souls of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Uh, That's by the way, is precisely what Jesus taught um, in the Olivet Discourse, that there's coming a time in human history like the world has never seen. In fact, he said that unless those days had been cut short, nobody would possibly survive. There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the folks from the Old Testament age, as well as tribulation saints, will be raised at the end of the seven years. Um, Matthew 25, uh, the first um, parable that Jesus tells with the parable of the virgins, is a picture of God judging the living Israel. There will be Jewish people who, during the time of the great tribulation period, will... um, come to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some will not. Some will reject him. But for the most part, the Jewish people are going to respond during the time of the 
uh, great tribulation. That's the focus. It's one of the functions of it. Uh, there's also at the end uh, in Matthew 25, the judgment of living Gentiles. And this is what you reference in terms of the sheep and the goat. So at the end of those seven years, God takes all the different ethnicities of the world, excluding the Jews who've already been judged, and he separates those believers from unbelievers. Those who um, embrace Jesus as Messiah, those who did not. Those who did not are taken away in judgment. They are at that point gone to the place of judgment where all lost people currently go Hades. Uh, those living Gentiles who survive the tribulation, who believe in Jesus, will enter the millennial reign in a new kind of world. And this is what the verse is referring to when he says one will be taken, one will be left. It has nothing to do with the rapture. It's being uh, the description there are those who are taken away in a judgment and those who are left to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Then at the end of the thousand years, there's another judgment. So we, we've mentioned the payment judgment. We've mentioned the judgment of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. The Bema takes place um, during the time of the great tribulation, right after the rapture. At the end of this tribulation, at the end of seven years, the judgment of Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. Um, and then uh, the judgment of living Israel, the judgment of living Gentiles. And then at the end of the thousand years, there's another judgment called the great white throne judgment. And this is where all the dead of all time are amassed out of Hades. All the lost dead of all time are brought together in one place. And then they go to the final resting place where it says death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So, I know it can be a little confusing, but the concept that there is, oh, just one big judgment and all the saved and all the lost of all time are brought together in one place and God separates them, it's just not found in the scripture. Uh, If you look at it carefully, you notice, oh, there's a number of different judgments that God uh, meets out and uh, the final for the lost, of course, being the great white throne judgment. So I hope that helps. I have a course in our Institute of Biblical Study on the Doctrine of Last Things. And I walked through that very, very carefully with all the scriptures. And that maybe would be helpful for you to study, to try to sort all that stuff out. All right, we've got about a minute and a half. Uh, hopefully you can get this one. In Psalm 8.5, the King James Version says a little lower than the angels, and the New American Standard says a little lower than God. But in the New American Standard in Hebrews 2.7, when the New Testament quotes Psalm 8.5, it says a little lower than the angels. Why does the New American Standard Psalm 8.5 seem to disagree with the KJV and also the NASB New Testament version of Psalm 8.5? Well, a little lower than God is what the Hebrew text reads, which is what the New American Standard follows in Psalm 8. The King James follows the Septuagint. Uh, The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says a little lower than the angels. Uh, Malachim is the Hebrew, angelos is the Greek for angels. And so here's the thing, it means messengers, and sometimes it's used of humans, sometimes it's used of literal angels. So the New American Standard actually is the most precise here. It follows the Old Testament Hebrew in Psalm 8, and in Hebrews, it follows the writer to the Hebrews who quotes from the Septuagint. 
And so to make them match, the King James follows the Septuagint in both places, and it leaves it up to the interpreter to sort out the problems. Uh, the New American Standard follows the Hebrew text, as I think they should, and it follows the um, Greek text that follows the Septuagint uh, when it quotes the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. I, that, I know that's a little confusing, but we're out of time.